six championships in eight years. We were the greatest team ever. What time is that? I'm going to ridicule you until you get on the same level with me. You're making a free run of me. It was his team. My mentality was to go out and win at any cost. What's up, everybody? It's Free Association from my living room and Donovan Bennett's Parts Unknown. What part of your house do you record this podcast in, Donovan? In my bedroom closet. <laughs> is that actually true? It is. Wow. You're just a real professional. You get like the actual perfect audio experience. Good acoustics, lots of clothing to absorb sound. And it is as far away from my child's bedroom as possible so there are dual reasons as to why i am in a small closet right now. again we've talked about the pros of you going viral with your son and having him walk in during one of your broadcasts but i just think that yeah it doesn't translate as well to the podcast medium you probably want to save it for a watch party well i mean that and the fact that he cannot walk those would be the... can he crawl he can crawl see can there we crawl. go I've heard that when the kids start to be able to crawl, that's the part where like now you're on high alert that everything in the house is a danger. That is true. I mean, you're constantly watching them anyways. So anything he could get to theoretically, you can see and avoid the danger beforehand. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a game changer. Really, it's stairs. Being able to scale a flight of stairs and get to another floor of the house is probably the uh, the precursor to, okay, we need to go from man to man to, to zone coverage, and I'll, I'll be the high safety. Yeah, there's a weird thing where kids, when they start to crawl, all of a sudden they want to like go upstairs, right? Like They see what, that one stair, and they're like, this is the new challenge. This is the new place for me to go. And it's the one thing where you're like, please don't do that. Please, please don't go up the stair. We really don't need to add to the security. Uh, so again, shout out to you and Richard Deitch. I'm really, really enjoying Sports on Pause. It's a really, really good podcast. So for those of you that listen to this thing, please go and subscribe to that if you're interested in the state of sports, when it's coming back. I think you and Deitch have some really good insight. You've been nailing it with guests. I would imagine that it's only going to keep growing. I've seen it on the podcast rankings. It's been obviously very, very popular. It's getting a lot of pub. And if you are a fan of the show, definitely go listen to that. But there's an unpausing happening in the NBA or one that's on the horizon right now. Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN, he reported a couple of days ago that the NBA is deciding to open practice facilities to players in markets where governments may be loosening stay at home orders and that they're still going to only have players come in small groups or for individual workouts, that larger group workouts are still going to be prohibited, but that the NBA is starting to take baby steps towards some type of workouts for players, letting guys get back into shape so that if a season does resume, at least that guys are moving around. I've spoken to Ennis Cantor. He is in a small apartment in Boston. And it's not easy for this guy to move around. It's not easy for this guy to get in shape. We know there's other guys in some cities where they've got a home or they've got a hoop in their yard uh, where they're able to move around a little bit. This is a baby step. I'm always pretty wary as to whether or not to weigh in on exactly how I feel about this stuff because I'm not a doctor. I can only do my best job of, of listening to scientists or listening to doctors. But what are your initial thoughts when you saw this report? I thought it was a terrible idea. I thought it was 
really short-sighted and really like not all that productive. So, and I do understand the sentiment and where it came from. So I understand the emotion behind it, but good emotions and good intentions can still have bad outcomes. And so the emotion comes from the fact that Adam Silver on a call with a bunch of GMs was hearing from general managers and presidents that players are hitting them up saying, Georgia is relaxing their restrictions on Friday. Should I get in the car? Should I fire up the PJ? Should I get to Atlanta and start getting into runs at Lifetime Fitness in Atlanta or 24-hour fitness, Planet Fitness, name your fitness, getting their fitness in in Atlanta? These are the most competitive creatures in the world. This is how they got to where they are. So naturally, they're going to want to push the envelope. And you're taking away something that they love abruptly, cold turkey. Naturally, they're going to want to do something that they get their self-esteem and their self of id from. So Adam Silver seeing this problem arising, saying, well, I don't want a bunch of the NBA to congregate in Decatur Georgia or Atlanta, Georgia, getting in these random runs at health care facilities. Who knows who's going to be there, how often they're clean. That's just a nightmare. And it could, in fact, delay the game coming back rather than speed it up if something goes poorly. So we've got these facilities. They're sitting vacant. Why don't we allow them to use them in the States that the restrictions have been relaxed? Well, there's two problems there. One, is we learned on the good side of this that the general public is taking their lead, not necessarily from what the president says or medical officials like Dr. Fauci are saying. They're taking the lead from celebrities and athletes and leagues, and they felt like this was serious when the leagues, in this case the NBA, took it serious. And so if a league like the NBA starts to go the opposite way, then maybe people stop being so vigilant in terms of social distancing and maybe we stop flattening the curve and we see a spike. So that's the one fear is that the NBA has a real chance to lead. And the pro of that outweighs the con of, well, you get shots up for two and a half more weeks before you could have. Like, is that going to change how guys return to play whenever they do, if they even do? I, I don't think so. The other massive issue is it's a competitive balance issue. And so basically you are giving a competitive advantage to the teams that happen to be in states where either their government leaders are a little bit more reckless or less pragmatic than others, or where their population is a lot less and thus the spread of the disease hasn't been as fast. So if you look at markets like New York, the Nets and the Knicks, two teams in the New York metro area, L.A., uh, the Clippers, and in just the state of California and how dense it is, Sacramento, Golden State, the Lakers, those four teams, those teams are going to have to wait longer, theoretically, to be able to allow their players to practice than the Indiana Pacers because of the density of that population, or the Atlanta Hawks because the local authorities in Georgia just don't really care. And so I think that's a nightmare. And what happens when people say, okay, well, you can gather 10 at a time. Can some teams have five-on-five five practices and other teams, guys are just allowed to shoot by themselves. I think it opens up a can of worms much, much greater than the small problem they were trying to solve. So the competitive balance thing is is interesting to me because like I said, leading into this thing, you do already have some advantages based on your geography already. Like, yeah, if you have an apartment in New York, 
you're not likely to have access to a hoop. If you live in Atlanta, if you're Trey Young and you've got a compound, you've got a hoop. You've got a place to go out and shoot. And I know that's not the same thing as being able to go and work out with your trainer and go work out in the gym, but the, the, the divide between it, I wonder how big the chasm is and I wonder how much we should be worrying about it. You're dead right in that right now to me, if it's individual workouts, I don't see that as a big enough competitive advantage to be worried about. But if it does get to the point, like you just said, where some teams are going to be allowed to practice five on five versus some teams that are not going be, to be allowed to, then you're right. Then then there is going to be a can of worms. I'm hoping that the league is doing enough diligence to make sure that they have some type of protocol or they have some type of setup that they're doing this. This is weird, but I think the NBA in a way has kind of earned the benefit of the doubt when it comes to my trust as a fan when it comes to their the way that they uh, act responsibly. And you can make the case that, all right, they tried to extend the season, and if not for Rudy Gobert, who knows how long it would have gone on for before the league did end up having a shutdown, and how much of this was you know, the NBA and the good nature of its, of its heart and the good spirit that it has versus social pressures and just the need to shut things down. But I don't think Adam Silver is going to come back hastily here. And individual workouts to me as of right now, my hope is, is that that being alone in a gym or being a one-on-one with a trainer, that that is not a risk that I think is is too far. Again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I don't want to really go into those uncomfortable places where I'm just, I'm not qualified to, to share what I think should be the case. Because all I think is that the head medical people, the head scientists in charge of this, people who have dedicated their lives to trying to understand the virus and viruses in general, that's who I'm going to take my cues from. All I'll say is that in Italy, one of the countries that was hit harder, if not the hardest, Syria teams are opening individual training on May 4th. And there are other sports that are starting to take these first steps into how do you come back? It's going to have to be with this. This is going to be the first step in everything is these individual workouts. They're going to come first. And I just don't think that there's going to be a time that in a world without a vaccine and that it's going to be comfortable or that it's going to feel comfortable or that it's going to feel the right time, that it's always going to kind of feel this way. And it's going to be about the risk that the players, the leagues, the public, and that again, health officials are going to be able to determine is close enough. And so I think we'll have to see where the NBA is still weeks from now. We'll still, we probably still won't see practices weeks from now. But you're right. These players are chomping at the bit. They're watching the Michael Jordan documentary. I talked to Dwight Powell about it today, and he's saying that all this is doing is amplifying guys' desire to come back to basketball, making them itchier for a quarantine league, making them just want to get back out there and compete against one another. And I just I just don't think there's going to be a perfect way to come back. And, and I think it's going to be really, really difficult in terms of how we make these judgments. So I get what you're saying in terms of well, there's inequities as it is. Mike Conley has an indoor hoop. Trey Young doesn't. And, you know, there's many players who live in condos who don't have hoops. There's nothing you can do about those inequities. There's mm-hmm. inequities in terms of guys have personal chefs and personal trainers and other guys don't. And even on the same team, there are inequities. Kyle Lowry has multi-million dollar house right. in Mississauga. And he has another one in Philadelphia. I'm not sure which one he's happening to be at. Serge Baca lives in a condo and most of the Raptors live in condos. So even on teams, you're going to have those inequities. That's nothing Adam Silver can do. He can't say the entire league is staying in dorm rooms to keep it fair for the foreseeable future. And even when we're using comps like what other leagues are doing or other countries are doing, 
Italy is depending on where we're talking about one to two months ahead of us. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And even when you look at the country of Italy, the way the virus was rampant in Italy is different in the north than it was in the south. Mm-hmm. And actually, in a very weird and sadly morbid way, the virus spread so quickly and was so lethal in Italy that it's not a great comp because in many ways it died off with a lot of people dying. And so that's not necessarily a a, a ideal scenario. Part of flattening the curve is keeping people away from the virus as long as possible. Thus, people don't die. And, And if you really want to return to a sense of normalcy, Sadly, the quickest way is like, okay, well, some people are going to get it. They're going to die, but they're not going to give it to anybody else. And then it's a wrap and we keep it moving. I don't think that the United States of America wants to be in that position. And I'm certainly sure that Adam Silver is not making his judgments based off a model that looks and feels the way it did in Italy at its height. And so I just don't know if guys working out by themselves with a trainer for the next couple weeks is going to make a huge dent in the type of basketball we see whenever basketball comes back. And if it's not, then I'm not sure if it's worth it to do it. But to your point, Adam Silver is having conversations with medical professionals that are a lot smarter than I, and certainly he is in a very tough decision with literally no playbook with which to base things off of but i was surprised when i heard the news given that the nba unlike other leagues has made it part of the brand that they are the league that stands for social responsibility first and above anything else like if you told me roger goodell said quarterbacks and receivers could get together and throw i'd be like yeah okay that kind of makes sense because i'd be so excited they they <laughs> that's the golden goose and the nfl calendar is not stopping for nobody give me but, russell wilson's boot camp baby i mean as long as the receivers wear gloves they yeah. should be okay just make sure the ball's on the money exactly yeah i just i think it's going to be awkward i think it's going to be difficult we're still navigating this i just all i will say is i'm trying to remain optimistic because i think i need to be i just this is my personal thing but i respect innovation i welcome innovation and I welcome creativity. And I just don't think that the league has said anything definitive about coming back yet. If the NBA said that, hey, we're coming back next week and we just feel like we can do this thing. And, you know, Fauci says, I don't think so. Then I'm there with the first stone saying I'm not ready for NBA basketball. I just I think that as of right now, all I'm going to do is wait and see and wait and see this approach. But I don't really have a problem with these leagues planning and preparing for potential eventualities of the way that this thing goes, because I don't think it's going to be perfect. I think that we're going to have to operate in a world where there's going to be concessions in certain things and that we just have to be ready for that. But the one good thing is that we still have this Jordan documentary and you did a really good interview with Jason Ayer, a excellent interview with him. We're going to play that in a few minutes, but I just finished watching uh, the last dance episodes three and four. You and I are digesting these in different ways. You are very fancy. You are in the know. You are in the circle. You have the advanced copies as far as they are available, which I think is through episode eight. I'm just following along uh, the good old fashioned way, which is, I guess, through Netflix in this country. And the biggest topic point, the biggest point of topics in the latest two start with Dennis Rodman, Phil Jackson, and the rivalry with the bad boys, Pistons. Donovan Bennett, where would you like to begin? I mean, we could, we could start there. There was a 
that's a reaction. And so you did mention I'm watching this and experiencing it uh, totally different. Than, Are you rewatching? Uh, Sorry, I just I wonder how you're doing. Like, when is the last time you watched three and four? Uh, so I mean, I watched them. I I watched them twice. So I watched them okay. and I took initial notes on them as I as I watched them. Actually, yeah, or I watched them for pleasure, I suppose, um, with my wife, and then I'll I'll rewatch them and dial down exactly what I want to extract from them for um, the articles that I'm I'm writing uh, about them for Sportsnet.ca. So I kind of watch them with different eyes, but I I I'm totally watching them. No, no matter when, uh, in isolation from the reaction that the greater public is having. And so mm -hmm. um, it, it's in, interesting for me after the fact to see what resonates with people, what starts trending on Twitter and what doesn't. Like there's some things that are quite obvious that are, are going to be points of conversation. Like in this episode three, uh, spoiler alert for those who haven't seen it, the Dennis Rodman load management story where he decided he needed a vacation he went to uh vegas and i don't feel bad about saying that because espn used that story to promote the episode so if you haven't heard that that happened well then I mean, no listen here's the thing we're here man like if you're listening to this episode of free association we're doing it with the assumption you have seen this thing if you want to stop it if you want to pause it you want to go listen to these things later you want to listen to us later because you're already following on spotify and you're already subscribed on itunes and you've already left a review and you've already done those nice things that's great but we are proceeding as though you have listened to this thing there's no more spoiler warning from here on out like it is what it is yeah and as as Faisal and i said when we recapped episode one and two and the series as a whole even if you you listen to us talk about it and then rewatch it we're not going to spoil anything from you the great part of it is hearing Jordan and, mm -hmm. and Rodman and Phil Jackson, them tell these stories and them recant all of the things that went on. So it's it, it's it's not going to take away from the experience. It's, it's not the cliffhanger at the end of a movie that nobody knows, um, you know what's what's going to happen. So I'm watching it kind of with my own thoughts and then seeing the rest of the world react. But one thing in terms of the reaction Sunday night when it aired in the United States is that everyone was reacting. Oh that's basketball that's old school basketball that's a rivalry we don't have enough of this anymore that's what's wrong with the game now the game's too soft like shut the hell listen number one okay were guys so tough back then magic johnson and isaiah thomas before they had their own rivalry they kissed at half court i mean come on what are we talking about and if you weren't paying attention michael jordan and danny Ainge were talking about the fact that they went golfing together on the off day of a playoff series Kyle Lowry not long ago got eviscerated for the audacity of seeing if Ty Lue wanted to hang out his house. Michael Jordan played 18 holes of golf with the guy who's going to be guarding him. And so I, the whole notion that we don't have rivalries anymore, we don't, the guy, players are too soft, players are too friendly, AU culture. I mean, I suppose you, if you could feel that way, that's fine. But don't act like players were never friends before and that everyone was Rick Mahorn and was trying to clothesline you when you went in the lane. When guys guys were were friendly on and off the court before as well. So that reaction to me, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I don't think it's accurate. First of all, when we are old men and we look back on journalism and the state of sports journalism, you know damn well we are going to be the same way where we start saying the... 
Well, back in my day, you know that's going to be a part of it, right? Like that's just a part of getting older. Like that's just what happens. I you... hope. I hope not. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's going to go down. It's definitely going to happen. I do that for some things. Like right. when I see Tory Lane's quarantine radio, you know, girls twerking for money and investments in their. Do Venmo they even accounts. get money? I'm like, I, I don't, you know, is the money worth it? No. Yeah. Like, I'm like, okay, I'm now the old guy. Like, I'm thinking this is ridiculous. But I honestly feel like if you asked me that, I'm now 36. If you asked me if I was 26, is this a good idea? I'd be like, no, I think this is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't, I don't, I, maybe it's just my sensibilities. I hope they don't change that much. There's certainly things that I'm more conservative about, but I, I just think it's not true. Ray Allen doesn't speak to members of his championship winning team with the Boston Celtics yeah. because he decided to play for the rival team. Like they, they're still, they're all retired and they still don't speak to the guy. So yeah, there are some rivalries that are bigger. Chris Paul used to have Steph Curry at his basketball camp and Steph Curry looked up to him and wanted to be, you know, another great guard coming out of Carolina. All was good and well until Steph Curry embarrassed Chris Paul on the court a couple times and won a couple championships that Chris Paul never won. Now, all of a sudden, they're not sharing the spotlight in State Farm commercials. Chris Paul is, is going out of his way so that Steph Curry can't get pregame shots up in the playoffs. Like, there are still beefs. I mean, the beefs maybe play out differently. You know, having guys tweet at each other like Carl Anthony Towns and Joel Embiid, maybe we see it differently. But there is still guys who disagree and back then, there were still guys who had love for each other. The Space Jam stories of guys in the league on that set just going hard in the offseason. Reggie Miller, who last I checked, did not have speaking roles to start the movie. He went to the set because he wanted to get in some good work. So I just think that the players then and now are more alike than they are different. So I think you actually just made my case for me, which is that it's a two things can be true situation that... We tend to amplify things from the past, and when we compare them to today, it just there there is more in common than I think people of a certain vintage will ever be willing to believe. Let's just put it that way. Like I, I agree with you. I don't think that I don't think that Chris Paul's desire to win is any less than anyone not named Michael Jordan, right? Like there's clearly something that separates Jordan from others. There's just too many people who account from it. It's very simple to see with not only his actions, but his personality. But for most competitors who reach that level, they have a desire to win that when they step between the lines, that the friendships and the camaraderie do tend to go away. I think the difference is, is what you just pointed to, is that when we talk about rivalries today, they are individuals. And they are still, you know, there's beef between Ray Allen and his Celtics teammates before he left. And sure, okay, maybe those teams didn't like each other, but those teams haven't been playing each other since 2012, the Celtics in the Heat, 2013. Like, we're we're seven years into the rear view here when we're comparing these guys. The biggest rivalry over the last season has been within the Warriors locker room. Like, it's between Draymond Green and, and Kevin Durant. All these rivalries now seem to be very individual. That the NBA has moved to this league where... It's about Carl Anthony Towns versus Joel Embiid, but it's certainly not about the Timberwolves versus the Sixers. I, I don't think that there are team rivalries in the same way anymore, and I don't think that's because the personalities have changed. I just think it's because of so much of how the culture has changed. You look at this documentary, and to me, the most shocking thing is still hearing Jerry Krause openly admit before the NBA All-Star break 
that Phil Jackson is not coming back no matter what, as the team is tearing off wins, as they've just figured out that Scottie Pippen is going to come back to this organization. Scott Pippen. <laughs> that, that, that all these things are going to happen now. And Krause is just like, nah, too bad. If Jordan walks away, he walks away. Could you imagine what it would be like in Los Angeles if anyone was like, yeah, uh, Vogel's gone. He's a goner. And LeBron James is saying, you know what? Uh, I'm not going to play here if Vogel's gone. And they're just like, nah, too bad. Then if LeBron James leaves, LeBron James leaves. Player empowerment has changed so much over the last 20 years, over the last 10 years, that it just, the player movement element and the way that guys perceive themselves as their own brand, their own team, it just, it doesn't really equate to team rivalries the same way. You can't build these things season over season. Like, even when you look at, the Raptors and their quote unquote rivalry of the Cavaliers. It wasn't the rivalry of the Cavaliers. It was the rivalry of LeBron James. It was saying that this is LeBron James who stomps them out. So I look at that stuff and I, I do feel a little bit of nostalgia and want for teams to dislike each other that way, to feel like there is a group that is that tight knit and that their goal is just to beat this other team. Listening to the Bulls talk about the way that it felt to beat the the Pistons. I just, I don't think that it happens that way quite the same way anymore. Even just like the different iterations of what the Rockets have been trying to overcome the Warriors. I, it just, to me, that's what's missing. It's not that these guys don't care. It's not that players don't pal around with one another or that individuals don't hold themselves as measuring sticks. It's just that I don't know if in the NBA we'll ever see another era where you just had these classic teams that end up lasting five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. It's just it's it's infinitely harder to keep them those groups together, and thus it's harder to build these regional and team rivalries. Would you agree with that? I mean, I understand what you mean in terms of player empowerment, but what player, maybe in the history of the game, until LeBron James, had more power than Michael Jordan? Like he made more money than some entire teams. But then why didn't he just say, "Hey, fire Jerry Krause"? How about that? How about you just go fire Jerry Krause? Hey, it's I'm Michael Jordan. You want me to come back next year? Keep Phil Jackson. Like, I do think it was different. He was powerful, but the league was just set up so differently that I don't think that he even knew he had that power or wanted to explore that power because something is amiss if a guy wouldn't just go in there and say, fire this GM if you want to keep me no. and keep my coach and let's keep running this thing back. He knew he had that power. Everyone knew he had that power. Let's distill what we're talking about here. When Dennis Rodman is going to Vegas or proposing a vacation, Phil Jackson brings Michael Jordan in to run it by him and get his sign off. Like mm -hmm. he didn't bring in Jerry Krause or Jerry Reinsdorf. And furthermore, the only reason why this documentary is being made, you know, generations later is because Michael Jordan had to sign off on the footage being filmed back then and being taken out of boxes in Secaucus, New Jersey at the NBA offices and been put into edit suites right now. That's how much power he had as a current player, that he was bigger than NBA entertainment. So I think he had power. The real villain in all of this that is just being allowed to moonwalk out of the car crash that was the end of a dynastic team, because remember, Jordan is still in his prime at this era this is not a we need to pivot to save our future so you know what we're going to draft Aaron Rodgers because Brett Favre is talking about retiring or we need to draft Jordan Love because I don't know Aaron Rodgers is 
I don't know. Well, there's no. I was wondering how long it was going to take for an NFL draft reference from the Cowboys fan who probably spent the weekend like I don't know, uh, like shooting off fireworks. I don't know what happened with you guys, they, but they did have a very good draft. Um, Jordan just won a six championship. He was the Finals MVP in all six. Statistically, he had as good, if not a better, year than he had prior without Scottie Pippen for huge stretches. Jerry Reinsdorf made the calculation to say, I've made a lot of money off of this dynasty. And at some point, the interest is not compounding. People aren't going to want to buy a Bulls jersey that much more if we win seven instead of six or eight instead of six. On the flip side, I have to continue to pay Phil Jackson and Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan more money every year the greater this team becomes. And so he just did the math and is like, I mean, I really want to end this at five, but six will be a cleaner break and I'm just, I'm getting out. I'm not paying these people anymore. And so Krause just did his bidding because that's what he was told to do. Bulls ownership being cheap and terrible, which to this day they still are. That's the real villain. So I don't think it was about Jordan's power. I think it was about economics of the situation. The difference being is that if that happened now, how many cap articles would be written about ways that they could maneuver to keep everyone? How many memes would be made about both Kraus and Reinsdorf? I think the coverage would be different. Thus, the oh, yeah. outcome would be different. But I don't think Jordan lacked power. The coverage is hilarious because, again, watching the documentary, you hear a voice and it sounds like Chris Broussard. I don't know exactly who it is, but that's who it sounds like. And he's like, hey, you know, uh, they're really talking about not keeping this together. It's like, could you imagine if the Warriors last year, the Warriors decide, hey, we want to bring it all back. And then they go up to management and they're like, nah, Bob Myers is not game for this. He's saying no KD, no Clay. He's he just doesn't want to deal with all this anymore. He's said that the Warriors have had enough. The coverage of this thing, it would be 24 hours a day. It would be people screaming at them. It would be fans just going and losing it. And it's just, it's such a different sign of the times. If there's anything, it's just like, yeah, how media coverage and, and the way that you could attack a team or that you could attack ownership. I do wonder about the Reinsdorf stuff because he's this real estate mogul that is used to just doing incredible deals. And Michael Jordan is maybe one of the first guy he felt like he was losing deals to. I think that's asinine because I think Jordan made him wealthier than... He could have ever possibly imagined when he bought the Chicago Bulls. But even still, that you're right. It seems like there is definitely the element of the cheapness that Kraus was working on his behest. They have left things out from this documentary. I don't know if that is to appease Reinsdorf in some way or to help his relationship with Michael Jordan. Again, like they talked about the way that Jordan and Kraus and that it's all about this quote about organizations being great. But really, the quote that stuck with Michael for his entire career was early on, Reinsdorf and Kraus referred to him as their property when he wanted to come back from his foot injury and they just leave that out of the documentary. And that's my one, if I have one critique of this thing and I don't have many because it is thrilling to watch. And, and I still want to get to a bunch of rapid fire topics here that maybe we can fly through after this is just, it actually should be longer. Like for someone that's watching it on Netflix and someone who's read books on the season and on the, on the bulls and who's a long lifelong NBA fan, it, it feels like everything is flying by and that everything is going fast. And I'm sure that the television experience is a little bit different when it is the full hour and there's the commercial breaks, but I just feel like so much stuff is being left out and that the stuff that they've shown so far has been a really good backdrop has been a really good setup, but it isn't anything that really people didn't know. And that we haven't seen the amount of 
you know, footage that I didn't expect to see. Like so far it's Scott Burrell on a plane and Michael Jordan calling him an alcoholic and saying that he's a ladies man. That's been the most like damning piece of footage that we've seen so far. Everything else is, is basically stuff that we knew that's been documented, that's been seen before. And so I wish these things were actually, you know, still 10 episodes, but if they were going to tell the story, tell the story completely and give me all of the details rather than just some of them. Like explain to me about go a little deeper into Phil Jackson's past, go a little deeper into Phil Jackson with the New York Knicks, go a little bit deeper into the way that his family and his upbringing shaped his life and, and the awkwardness that he felt with that. I just, I, I feel like there have been some parts that have been lacking so far and I understand the constraints. It's just, that's where I'm at with the documentary. That's 10 parts, which tells you how much there is to tell with this thing. So we've got some new things for you this NBA season. And no, it's not just Terrence Davis playing so well. We have a newsletter that will break that down and so much more. Our weekly newsletter from NBA editor Stephen Leung. It gives you original content, opinion, analysis. You can't find it anywhere else. And it is delivered directly to you right in your inbox. Sportsnet.ca slash newsletters. Just subscribe and we got you. Can I do a quick rapid fire with you before we move on to your interview with Jason Hare? Sure. Okay. Quick thing. I don't think Jordan is, or sorry, I don't think Rodman is underrated at all. I think Rodman is exactly what we remember. He's a guy that when he was missing from the, the Bulls, they dropped 90 rebounds on average. He's one of the greatest rebounders of all time. We understand that maybe what is lost a little bit is his defensive prowess when he was a part of the Pistons, but that overall his place in history is pretty secure. That the flamboyancy, the hair, the the outfits, that a lot of that was very, I don't know, to me, very Marilyn Manson-y, very Alice Cooper-y, where he's putting on a bit of a personality to stand out and stick out, but that he is not an underrated figure when it comes to the Bulls because of these things, and that it just remains the brilliance of Scottie Pippen to me That is that is the thing that that continues to be lost a little bit to time is just how good Scottie Pippen was and how integral he was to the Bulls and that it was no coincidence that when he was out during the first half of the season that the Bulls really struggled. He was the NBA's first influencer in a way. Uh, I mean, look at him in his prime. Obviously, Carmen Electra is detailed in the doc, but he dated Madonna, Carmen Electra, yep. Tony Braxton in his prime and in, in, you know, in the, in their prime, I suppose. Prime it's a good list. Prime of in terms Looks. of um, you know, Looks. influence, um, and and their careers. There's someone else he dated on that list that I'm forgetting, um, but he and he, the, my guy knew how to how to sell sell himself. Mm -hmm. He showed up in a to his own book signing, wearing a dress, saying he was marrying himself, and the book was. Uh, you know, a bestseller. And I don't think it was because he's a great author. No, um, that book stinks. Uh, well, there, I've read that book. It's no good. There you go. Um, I, I think it's very, very interesting, and he's super complex. But to go from the super shy kid, small town, stole watches, uh, not because yep. he needed the money, but because he wanted to give them to his friends, so his friends would appreciate him and like him to going to this person where he's an, uh, 
a celebrity that transforms just his ability to play on the court. I think he was in a, in a way one of the NBA's first real influencers. Oh, and by the way, he was like the greatest rebounder of all time. Like the sequence in the doc where they're talking about him going and practicing rebound mm -hmm. so it's like dennis rodman and, and kayla alexander the two people in the world who practice rebounding <laughs> and he in basically what he knew about the flight of the ball and when jordan shoots from this angle the ball is going to come off this way like he's he, he's like this mad genius in terms of rebounding he's like rebounding rain man if you will i thought that was fascinating and then the other part of his depiction that was fascinating was his inability to say sorry but wanting to express the fact that he was grateful for michael and saw, sorry that he let him down and that was just him going to his room and asking for a cigar which i'm not sure how michael was supposed to understand that meant sorry but he did maybe it's because they're both lovers of cigars then hindsight and uh if if you know if you love a cigar so much that you got to give one up randomly to someone that that's really something but uh um yeah i i think uh i think rodman is properly rated he yeah he opened up a space for draymond green to be draymond green if you will and so when people compare draymond green to charles barkley and we, we talked about this with kenny smith he joined us for the recent watch party we did on the 2000 Vince Carter dunk contest. That's that's not a comp. I mean, they're both undersized and power forwards. But Draymond Green's game is much more like Dennis Rodman's than it is Charles Barkley's. And I, I think because of, of Rodman existing, right, it, it gives a player like Draymond the the space to do the things that he does and impact the game the way he does. So I don't, I don't know if he's underrated or overrated. I, I, I don't, I don't think he's underrated because he just nope. didn't score at all. And if he played in this NBA, he he would be such a non-shooter in many cases. It'd be hard for him to close games. But I think he's properly related because rated because he was a great defender, a great pest, and he was a, a he made rebounding fun. He brought flash to rebounding, which is like impossible. Yeah, he is. In my lifetime, I think of the most dominant rebounders I've ever seen. And and yeah, Dennis Rodman is he's right there. It's Charles Barkley, it's Dennis Rodman, but nobody nobody during those Bulls era, especially at the very end, was just like, Hey man, this is your role. Like this is who you are and you excel at it that way. He was a physical freak. He was a true physical freak. And that's part of what I love about the NBA is it's a league I've always said it's a league of freaks. It's the most athletic league on the planet to me. And you have these guys who are special when it comes to athleticism in a, in a reality where, you know, the average height uh, is, is six foot seven and you have to run like a gazelle. So, no, he was absolutely special. I just I do think he's properly rated. That's an interesting one is what you mentioned there, the, the influence stuff and, and the ability to, you know, uh, go out and be in the public eye the way that he was. Um, yeah, I think that's very interesting. But as a basketball player, I think he, he was great and he's he's greatly appreciated. Um, Phil Jackson. What I loved about this documentary, more, almost more than anything, is one is seeing Jordan crying, holding the trophy with his dad. It's just, it's an image that I, I just think it's everything that you want in sports. It's, it may, it's what it all means. But him and Phil having that moment in the locker room and Phil saying you did it the right way and 
just their relationship and Phil's ability to connect with Rodman and his ability to connect with Michael Jordan in a way that Michael Jordan wouldn't play for another guy. The way that he gets Scottie Pippen to come back after demanding a trade and the way that Phil Jackson did this was by constantly reminding Scottie Pippen that he was not going to do anything but hurt his own pocketbook, that he was going to get fined, that he didn't want to see him go in a free agency and have teams that weren't willing to go after Scottie Pippen because they were worried about him being a malcontent. The guy ends up getting his money. He ended up getting paid by by the Houston Rockets. He ends up in his career having more earnings than Michael Jordan anyways, so the advice actually does pan out. But I just think that that is the thing about Phil Jackson and about all great coaches that I find so fascinating. I think there are millions of people out there that can do X's and O's. I think there are so few people who can connect with a Dennis Rodman and have them feel this deep, immense loyalty and a Michael Jordan and a Scottie Pippen and a Steve Kerr and a Bill Wennington to have all of these people buy in. Imagine I tried to go to Sportsnet and get everybody to start doing, you know, yoga. <laughs> you guys would be like, shut up. There would be maybe one person I'm getting on board here. And I, I just think that's such a fascinating element of Phil Jackson. And I, I think I would watch, he has many books. And if we're talking about great sports books, he actually has many that are, that are very, very interesting to read. But if we're talking about figures that are in this documentary that I'm most interested in outside of Michael Jordan, it's easily with a bullet Phil Jackson. I could watch five more episodes that were just on Phil, his approach and the way that he connected with people. Yeah. I, I uh, had a lot of time in, if you keep watching, I mean, episode four, for those who haven't seen is the Phil Jackson uh, episode. Uh, so I have a lot of time for the Zen master and his perspective throughout uh, this series. I, 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 to come back to what you said earlier about wanting to unpack more of that, season and see more behind the scenes so it's tough because you're creating this this piece of art knowing that vastly different people are going to consume it so you who have been hyper attentive to basketball for the last let's say two decades there's a lot that you know and you're like okay like let's get through this let's get to the good stuff but there's a bunch of people who in order for them to appreciate the behind the scenes of 97 and 98 need to know the backstories need to know where these guys came from what made them who they are the fact that in 97 98 they're all rock stars but really at the heart of their individual stories they're all kind of underdogs and so you're trying to do this two these two things at once plus the only reason why you have a license to tell the story is because there's this footage that was shot behind the scenes of that last season that nobody has done anything with. So if you just pitched MJ, hey, I want to do a 30 for 30 just on you, the answer would be no in terms of basketball sense. That's why the only 30 for 30 about him thus far is him riding the bus, him playing baseball, because that was outside of his purview and the ownership that he had over his likeness as it pertains to NBA things. So you got to tell the story through the lens of 97, 98, but you also have to give everyone else the background on all these guys to get there. So you're kind of doing multiple things at once. So I, I do uh, really, I, it's tough to, it's tough to, it's tough to, I don't want to say too much because I know there's, there's still stuff to come, but I do really appreciate the approach because it's like, okay, you guys got the Coles notes. You got the Coles notes. We're going through time, but it's about 97, 98. So we're giving you little bits of 97, 98, weaving that into the story throughout. And then once everyone's caught up to 97, 98, then the series finishes like with a real strong 
push if that makes sense and and phil and his perspective is a big big part of that okay that's phenomenal i was actually going to ask you without spoiling anything do we actually start to get things that we don't already know because at at this point i would say that there there has been nothing that has been shown that that i did not already know through through books or old articles like it's all it's all been documented it's all there well i mean you didn't know rodman went to vegas for a couple days you didn't know necessarily um the level of disdain on the team for for kraus you obviously knew that there was financial Mm, no no the kraus stuff is is like the most documented thing that's out there like crumbs calling him crumbs and jordan's absolute hate for him the reason that phil jackson a guy who again he brought in who he brings from you know very very small leagues who he identifies early on and then grooms to be a head coach to someone who uh, the, the players and their feelings towards Kraus being a guy who was a violator of the room is like, it, it's very, very well known. And like, yeah, Michael Jordan, even at his Hall of Fame speech, ends up insulting him. I just, yeah, at this point, that there has not been something that has not been public record, honestly. Like, it's, it, this, this stuff has all actually been documented. I just, uh, seeing some of the footage is really cool. Outside of, like I said, outside of the footage of Scott Burrell, and Michael Jordan on the plane, like there, there just hasn't been anything that's, that's overly illuminating. We knew about the blow up with Krauss and Pippen. Like it's, it's been set up so far. I just, I did think that we were going to end up having some more behind the scenes footage at this point than, than set up four episodes in, um, quick, 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 firing through a couple of things. Jordan's finger is disgusting. Uh, <laughs> does, does this explained? Like, did he break? Is that just basketball? Is basketball like wide receivers? I mean, I think all basketball players' fingers are are not great. No, it's so bad. It's like it crooks off. It, it's I've I, I I had to pause the tape to look at it a little bit more. Like, have you ever seen Calvin Johnson's fingers? Uh, I have actually. Oh, like that's what it reminded me of. I'm like, I don't know how we got here. Um, Jordan criticizes Craig Elo for his defense in this documentary and says it's a mistake and that it should have been Ron Harper and they cut to Ron Harper. But Elo's all over him. Do you think that Craig Elo could have played that any better or that Ron Harper could have played the shot any better when it comes to Michael Jordan? Well, you love the fact that two things can be true. Yeah, Elo yeah. was all over him, and Jordan hung and pumped and waited for Elo to throw himself out of bounds on the ground like a child having a temper tantrum. And Jordan hit the shot and had the beautiful fist pumps. But Ron Harper certainly could have and would have done a better job i mean one one of them was known for his defense and the other wasn't uh and one of them was basically almost the exact same size and build as jordan and the other wasn't and uh i mean jordan feels ron harper would have done a better job ron harper feels like he would have been done a better job i don't know what craig elo feels like he's probably still in his feelings you know sitting in row one um but 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 i I mean i think you know the methodology of well, if, if there's going to be a switch, well, then Ron Harper will have him on the switch. Well, that, I, su- I suppose that's true if that switch is with Ron Harper's man, but th- why would the Bulls do that? Because they don't want gar- Harper guarding him. But furthermore, why don't you just have Harper guard him so that he makes the catch hard or impossible, and thus Jordan doesn't get the chance to take the shot before there's a uh, you know a, an inbound violation. And so, yeah, no, it, it, it was a valiant effort, but it was also the wrong guy guarding the, the greatest player at the time. 
poor Elo, because he hits that bucket. He has this incredible game, and now he's being insulted by Donovan so many years later for being a, a crybaby, for being sad about Jordan hitting an all-time shot in his face. The Michael Jordan, the interview immediately after, where he says, the, the guy just runs over. I don't know who that person is, but he just yells, Is that the greatest post-game interview of all time? I, I don't know how anything could possibly ever top that. Like Richard Sherman? <laughs> like what's, what's better than that? You stuck it, baby. Like he doesn't even ask him a question. He's just yelling, you stuck it. He's so excited. I love that so much. Uh, a kamikaze shot. Do you know what it is? Like of alcohol? Yeah, that's what Dennis Rodman keeps yeah. drinking. He has a kamikaze song. He's always drinking kamikazes. He's hung over from kamikazes. I had to Google it. I've, I don't... I don't recall ever ordering one, but do you know offhand what a kamikaze shot is? Oh, I don't know what's in it, but I do, I do know yeah. that it exists, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. It's uh, vodka, triple sec, and lime. And, and I feel like there's going to be a lot of people uh, doing kamikaze shots after this, uh, that, that Dennis Rodman has brought back the kamikaze shot. Killing a chicken in a graveyard and pouring the blood on your opponent's bench. Uh, like the move or too far? No, that's that's disgusting. That's disgusting in any era. <laughs> Could you imagine being Phil Jackson and not knowing that was a thing and seeing it for the first time, <laughs> like and hearing the story of what happened? Yeah, no. Oh, I just love that. I think that's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. Um, Scotty Pippen, if he doesn't get that migraine, maybe the Bulls end up winning seven titles. Yes or no? Um, I'm gonna say no. He was one of ten in that game. He was. Uh, he probably shouldn't have played. But no, I'm going to say no. I don't. I don't. I don't think okay. they were there yet. All right. That's uh. That's all I have for uh the rapid fire portion. I just. I still can't get over killing a chicken in a graveyard. Just the idea that it's not just the chicken blood. It's the the guys congregating in the graveyard the night before, being like, "All right, is everybody here? Uh, all right. Uh, we're going to kill this chicken now. We're going to save its blood, and of course, we're going to pour this over the bench of our opponents in uh in the Puerto Rican basketball league." <laughs> A couple of days later, it's just too good. You did an interview with Jason Hare. Why don't you set it up for us and uh, we'll call it a week. Yeah, so Jason was nice enough to give us some time to give his perspective on making the doc, but also how the fact that the public is reacting to it in real time like a sporting event, which is not normally the case for a filmmaker of his caliber. And so that part of the conversation was interesting, but... I think the most revealing part was the fact that while people were watching, he's still been working on it at home. He took a break from working on it to talk to us. And that conversation is up next. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time. I know this is a busy time. Let's go back to the beginning of the process. What was it like for you sitting down with Michael Jordan, trying to convince him to do this unprecedented doc? Well, he had been signed on before I even came into the picture. The first step was getting his permission after, at that point, 18 years of these films lying dormant in a basement at the NBA. The production company, Mandalay, and Mike Tolan, the executive producer, had to go to Michael and his team and go to the NBA with a pitch and say it's time. And, you know, year after year, people had gone with pitches. This wasn't a new thing. And it was kind of like urban legend in production circles that this footage existed, but we needed Michael's permission in order for people to see it, because that was the condition under which they let these cameras in. Adam Silver told him, we'll never use this footage without your permission. At worst case scenario, you have the best home movies of all time. 
So it was about two or three months after he agreed that I was approached to see if I would be interested in directing it, which of course I was. And you had to do this in the post-production phase through COVID-19. What unique challenges and maybe even opportunities has that presented? There's two challenges. One is technological. We were going from a multi-million dollar edit facility with you know five or six offices and huge audio mixing suites and color correction suites. And then all of a sudden, everybody was in lockdown at their own homes, and we don't have nearly the same technological benefits. I mean, I am finishing this thing on a desktop. There's smoke coming out the sides of it by now, but technologically, it was challenging, but more so creatively and just the collaborative aspect of making these things. The joy of it is sitting in rooms with people late at night and just kind of tossing a football around and saying, hey, what if we tried this? And what if we tried this? And that's where you have these epiphanies that make the series what it is. No matter what project you're working on, it's the camaraderie of the staff and everybody is giving their all and you're all sitting there together. You're like a family. Then they broke up this family. and It's tough to replicate that over Zoom meetings and text threads and email, but um, we're doing our best. And I don't think we've lost an ounce of the quality in these final few episodes that we're currently finishing right now from our apartments. So everyone has more time on their hands now, certainly, as does MJ. What has his input been like throughout the process? He's been involved. It's been the perfect level of input because you want him to be involved and not be aloof and, you know, disinterested. But you also don't want him involved so much that he's overtaking the project and bullying his way into telling you what to do, which he could because he's Michael Jordan and no one would be able to argue with him because it's his permission that this whole thing is relying on. He's been the perfect partner because he's actively watching cuts and he's giving notes that are actually thoughtful and really productive. It shouldn't surprise anybody that he's also the Michael Jordan of giving notes on a documentary about himself and his team. So he's been the perfect level and he's in quarantine just like the rest of us. You know, this is the great equalizer globally right now is that anyone you can think of they're doing the same thing that you and I are doing, probably in a much nicer house than me, certainly. But Michael's in quarantine with his wife and I think his brother-in-law and a little bit of other family. And they're actively watching rough cuts. On Sunday, the day of the premiere, I sent out the final rough cut of episode 10. We're finishing episode 10's picture lock cut today. It's still a few more weeks of work to finish it, but the actual editing is done today. And the final rough cut was done on Sunday and Michael watched it on his home computer, just like the rest of the partners in this project. So he's been involved from the get-go. Now, because everyone is at home, social distancing, people are starving for content and people have watched this in the way they watch and communicate about a sporting event. For the creator, what has that been like, seeing people consume your content in that way? It's really gratifying to me and to our whole team because we were working 100 miles an hour on this thing for the last six months or a year. And then we had to kind of ratchet it up to 125 miles an hour just to get to this accelerated finish line. But to be able to see it resonate with people the way that it has and more so to hear the comments that people are giving about how this has given them an escape and a diversion from these conditions and how I've gotten a lot of notes from dads and moms saying that they watch this with their sons and daughters and you know, this reminds me of the time with my dad and we're Zooming as a family before and after the shows. That's so gratifying because sports were a huge part of my life growing up. And it's one of the things that bonded our family more than anything else is our love of sports, our participation in sports. I can't think of a time during my childhood where I didn't have a ball or a bat in my hand. So it's really, really gratifying to see that in a time of darkness, we can bring a little bit of light for an hour or two every week. 
at one point 25 of the top 30 trending topics was the last dance is it the team or the point that we're in right now or the music why do you think this has been such a seismic cultural moment around your piece of work i think it's a combination of all those things i think more so that this is nostalgic and I hope that it's fun for people to watch. I hope it's a diversion and that it brings people back to their youth and allows them to share their youth with, you know, the people they shared it with back then. And then also with their kids and younger people in their families or friend groups. Um, so I think that if we had done something a lot heavier, if this was a big expose into a big heavy topic, I don't think it would resonate nearly as much because I think that people, if they want to see heavy, go to any of the 24 hour news networks and you can see heavy all day long. I think that people need an escape. And, you know, this is a vessel back to your childhood. It's a vessel back to a really fun time in pop culture. The 80s and 90s were the music was so fun. The characters were so colorful. The sports were so captivating back then that it brings us to a place of safety. So I think that just the subject matter alone with the timing and the conditions we're all under, it's the perfect recipe for people to escape for an hour or two. One of the immediate responses from the first airing online, on television, was the Jordan versus LeBron debate. Stands on both sides, battled it out. Why do you think people immediately went to that place? I think it's instinct online. That's where people go to argue about stuff and scream into the void. So, you know, we all knew that was going to happen. And I never, from day one, I made it pretty clear that I didn't want to make this a referendum on who was the greatest of all time, because Michael's certainly not interested in that argument. And I am not interested in making that argument as well. If you want to use this series as part of your evidence to have that argument, have at it. And I think it's fun that people discuss that online. It's part of what we love about sports. We, our commonality is in agreeing about sports and in disagreeing about sports and having these, you know, friendly, sometimes a little bit more intense than friendly dialogues online. But it's just what people want to do. And if anything, that's kind of one of the offshoots of what's gratifying about this is that. It gives people a chance to get fired up about something else besides viruses and face masks and staying inside and all that. So, you know, if it generates discussion like that and it's harmless and it's fun for people to argue about who they like better than have at it. This is a unique project because there's so many stakeholders, obviously Jordan and Jumpman, Netflix, NBA Entertainment and NBA Corporate, and then obviously ESPN. What was it like managing all of the stakeholders when you're making it? Uh, it's probably the biggest challenge because when you have that many powerful people in a room, sometimes the bullets are whizzing over your head and sometimes you're catching bullets because you're the one making the argument that you're adamant about on that particular day or that particular week. So there are a lot of knockdown dragouts, respectful knockdown dragouts, but people are passionate about this thing and people have different tastes. You know, if you had 20 people at a dinner table, not everybody's going to agree on what the entree should be. Somebody wants steak, somebody wants fish, somebody's a vegetarian. And we had the exact same situation with all of these partners. But what was key is that at the end of the day, cooler heads always prevailed and everyone had the humility to say, you know what, this is the best way to go. And oftentimes that was me too, is that I would be dead set on saying, this is the vision that I have for this thing and we're definitely doing it this way. And then someone would offer an idea and kind of offer it again and offer it again and say, try it this way. I really think you should try it this way. And it actually worked. So all of us, I think, you know, we had a big Zoom call with all of the executives on this thing and all the partners on Sunday night. And it was like we had reached, you know, 
the precipice of this mountaintop. We're not there yet because we haven't finished the series, but it was a love fest because it was like, you know what? We all have put our blood, sweat, and tears into this thing for the last two to four years. Some people, 22 years. So everybody, I think, is proud of the output or the final product. And I'm proud that we were all able to come to the table and manage our passions and have it be the best thing it could be. Before I let you go, I got to know, as a content creator myself, I always... I stress over the things I leave out, whether it's a written article or you know an interview feature. What's on the cutting room floor really hurts me. So for you, the best thing you had to cut out and leave on the cutting room floor that you really loved but couldn't include. Episode one could have been a lot longer. You could do a documentary about Michael's years from his sophomore year in high school up through his UNC years and how that shaped him into the man he is today. We all know the story about him being cut his sophomore year, but the meteoric rise that occurred after that for the next two years, how he got to five-star basketball camp and nobody knew who he was. I think one of the coaches there on the first day said, who the F is Mike Jordan? He was looking at a list because this kid, Mike Jordan from Wilmington, was just schooling all these guys. And he rocketed to the top of the high school recruit map in one week, in five days. He was the MVP of this camp that had a lot of big names at it. No one had ever heard him like so stories like that, I mean, Michael wrote to UVA and UCLA himself asking them to come watch him play because he wanted to go to those schools and no one ever responded. I mean, imagine not responding to a letter from Michael Jordan saying, come watch me play basketball. But it shows you how far he came in that short period of time. So I wish we could have gone a little deeper on that, but we had a lot of stories to get to. So we had to get some stuff out of the way in the early going and then get going on our trip. And lastly, you know, people are looking for entertainment right now. They're also looking for inspiration. Is there one thing that you wanted people to take away that they can apply to themselves in their lives? What would it be? I think that the biggest lesson that I learned is that it's easy with all these years of hindsight to say it got to be just a given. Death taxes and the bulls in the finals are the only given things in life in the 90s, besides when Michael left to play baseball. But so it must have gotten easier for them. They had all these great players on the same team and they just trampled everybody in their path. It wasn't that way at all. And anything that's that significant an accomplishment that looks easy is not easy. And if you make it look easy, it's just that much more of an accomplishment. These guys went through a lot of stuff. You don't think of Michael Jordan as an underdog, but if you examine it from the ground level, instead of 35,000 feet up, he was. He was an unlikely candidate to be not only a superstar, but the greatest of all time. Scottie Pippen had no business having NBA aspirations coming from a town of 2,000 growing up in abject poverty, but he stuck at it and he believed in himself. Steve Kerr wasn't even recruited coming out of high school and ended up at Arizona and never had NBA aspirations, wanted to maybe be a coach, which he's become. And then he found himself in the NBA overachieving. These guys are underdogs and overachievers. So that's been the most enlightening thing to me is that all of these guys, you think that they're just naturally gifted and it comes easy for them. It's completely the opposite. Well, you made this look easy, even though people in the industry know certainly doing it this way was not both personally thankful for you for doing it and professionally jealous. Thank you so much for creating it for all of us to consume. You got it, Donovan. Thanks for having me, man. And thanks again to Jason for spending some time with us. Uh, he's a good follow because he's constantly working on projects like this. Andre the Giant, the Fab Five, the 85 Bears, and now the Last Dance we're going to continue to talk about it on the podcast, but if you want to give him a follow at Jason M. Hare is his handle on Twitter. 
Also, if you want to support and follow us, make sure you like, favorite, subscribe, share. This podcast, we really appreciate the feedback. And as JD mentioned earlier, Sports on Pause is a podcast I'm doing with Richard Deitch talking about how sports is related to everything COVID-19. Hopefully on this podcast, we're talking about basketball returning soon. But if you want to get some of that conversation, make sure you subscribe to that podcast as well. Until next week, be safe and take care of your friends and family.